Good morning, everybody. A very warm welcome to the London School of Economics and our fourth year of our literary festival. This morning, we um, have the session on narratives, the oral tradition of sto storytelling and tradition. I'm Mukulika Banerjee from the Department of Anthropology, and I'll be moderating two very brilliant people. And I think when you have two storytellers in the room, you need a moderator, uh, because we, have, we do have to leave the room at some point. But for the next 90 minutes or so, we hope to um, embark on this amazing journey, really, of uh, talking about stories and heroes and traditions and narratives and narrative forms from different cultures. And we have, um, as a peg for, for this event, given this is our literary festival, uh, the launch and um, discussion of Bayunaidu's book, Sita's Ascent, which is outside for sale, which I hope you will be um, persuaded to read and experience for yourselves. Uh, but we have Vayunaidu here. Uh, she's a storyteller, performer, um, and somebody who has worked for many, many years in developing storytelling as a performance art and as, as a genre that not many of us have encountered in uh, our own uh, consumption of culture, but one that we hope that we will get to know a little bit more today. What is exceptional about um, this session is that we have Vayu's experience as a storyteller, but also as an author of a novel, The Sita's Ascent. And we hope through this juxtaposition to talk about orality and writing, about the competing demands of different narrative forms, of how narratives are constructed, how narratives are controlled by contemporary politics, how history becomes absolutely urgent, as we know in our current debates this week about the history curriculum in British schools at the moment, how urgent these issues are for the present. Um, Vayu uh, has a PhD in this subject from the University of Leeds and has been a performer in, in many venues, the Barbican, the South Bank, the British Library, and across the world. Um, today she will start this session with uh, a short story uh, that we wanted to hear first to see what it is to be told a story uh, uh, and a joy and pleasure that we as adults don't always experience. We also have the renowned historian Michael Wood, who is a familiar face to most of us who live in Britain and watch television. But Michael's a historian with a passionate historian who uh, has engaged with the complexities of narratives across world cultures and brought them to our television screens, brought them to film uh, in so many different programs that he's made. And you all, I'm sure, are aware right from Alexander's journey to the railway journeys in India to the most recent one in British history last year. Now, we asked Michael to come along today also because he's had a very long, uh, old engagement with India and her narrative traditions, uh, and especially in South India, but also the story of Ramayan, which is, of course, the story in which Sita is the center, and that's the subject of Vayu's book. So we are hoping in this conversation with a historian and a storyteller, but both of them have uh, ex experimented both with storytelling, with narrative, but also different genre and different media of film, of writing, of telling, uh, of the visual in general. And that's the conversation we hope to have today. Um, so I'm going to uh, leave the stage to Vayu now, and I would like you, like Vayu, to come and tell us a story. 
after which we will start the panel discussion. Thank you. I didn't realize I had already tipped off the technicals to say we're going to the deep, dark north. <laughs> to the Norse. Okay. In the beginning, there was nothing. Just blackness. I think in London we're quite familiar with that now over the last few months. But this is in the deep Viking north. In a space called Gininung Gap, I'm not going to ask you to repeat that. We could start chanting all morning long. But in that space, Gininung Gap, you had ice in the north and the fires from the south. And as they met, soon, frost giants populated the earth. And all you need to remember in this digital age, that from the frost giants, three were born. Of those three, one is important for our memory. He was Odin, the all-knowing father of the gods. He lived in Asgard, or as Hindus we say, Swargaloka. Now, it so happened, you had the gods who were the Asir, and you had the fertility gods, the ones who were spontaneous, impulsive, seductive, and they had sex. They were the Vanir. Now, Asir and Vanir constantly had a tug of war. And finally, they decided they had to meet if this was life. And as a truce, they decided to create a poet. And how did they do it? Not with beautiful carvings. But they sneezed, they gave their snot, their spit and other such juices from their orifices. And they stirred it into a great big pot. From it, a mortal, a man emerged. His name was Kwasir. He was the poet. He knew the mysterious ways of the workings, not only of mortal minds, but of the way things happened. And when people would ask him questions, he wouldn't have answers, but he would answer with questions, making those people feel as if they had answered their own questions. And whenever he walked past any hamlet in that cold, dark north, people would leave their salting and their scything just to come and listen to him tell stories from such a vast ocean of memories. Now, it so happened life could go on very peacefully with the magic of those words. But there were two dwarves, Falar and Galar, treacherous creatures, and they had always been able to get things under their control. And it mystified them that here was a man who just wandered through the places and everybody stopped everything and wished to be controlled by him. So they decided they must invite him for a banquet. And that they did in their dark dungeon of a cave where the only chandeliers were the kind of ice that stuck out like knives from the ceiling. And on that great big stone table covered with hammered gold 
were there glinting goblets of wine. All the other dwarves were there. They drank, they ate, they made merry. And when Kwasir had sung before his supper, Falar and Galar called him into their private chambers, saying they had a particular question. But when they took him into the dark chamber, buried within their sleeves were these knives, and they plunged it into the poet's chest. And he spouted forth like a fountain, all his blood being drained out of his God-made body. And quickly, Falar and Galar found three jars. Borden, Soden, and Odrir. The Odrir was the large big cauldron. And they poured the blood into these three jars. And then they mixed it with honey. A fine brew of mead. And they kept the secret to themselves because when they drank the poet's blood mixed with honey, they were the wisest. In spite of their brutality, they chose the mead of the poet. Now, to cut this very long story short, Sutung, who was the son of two treacherous giants, decided that he would now be the owner of these three jars. He made sure he got rid of the dwarves. But Sutung didn't keep it a secret. He talked about it, and it glided through the air. And in Asgard, Odin, the all-knowing father, realized that the mead from heaven was now in Midgard amongst the mortals. So he took flight from Asgard, disguising himself as many a kind of man with one eye. And finally, he entered this particular rock mountain in the form of a snake, and then came back into his shape-shifted form of Bolverk. He saw the guard to the great big jars of the mead of heaven. She was a woman, Sutung's daughter. He charmed her with words like honey. And heartless as he was a god too, he asked her for the one thing he wanted and she was willing to give. He said, just a draught of that delightful mead from each of the three jars. She let him to it. But with one big draught, he drained Odin, Boden, and Odrir. And then, quick as a flash, he shifted his shape into an eagle, flew out of the rocky mountain. By now, Sutung, who was a wise man and who had tasted the mead, he too shifted his shape as an eagle. And there was a great chase in the skies. Now Odin was reaching the walls of Asgard. All the gods in Asgard began to bring bowls, pots, pans, anything. And as Odin just about flew through, he poured what he held in his beak, the great mead that had now returned to heaven. Just a few driblets fell on the outside wall of Asgard. Sutung flew back in shame. But any person who passes by the walls of Asgard can have a lick of that amazing mead and they become poets, documentarists, historians, storytellers, listeners and that's how the story came to me.
feel we shouldn't talk for a while while we are processing that story, but <clears throat> we must carry on. And I, I wonder, Michael, do you want to first just respond to the story with all the stories you know? Um, I would say uh, at the very beginning, it's part of a cycle of, or it's part of a, a series of themes, especially in the poetry of what the scholars call the Indo-Europeans, which you find in many cultures. And, of course, the magic power of the poet. You've only got to look at Anglo-Saxon poetry, for example. Poets can fly through time. Uh, Anglo-Saxon poets claim that they rode with Alexander and they rode with the heroes of the past. There's a kind of magic power which transmits itself over time and goes through different cultures. And I suppose, given our theme today, all I would say is that the the great um, poetic narratives... Uh, complexes of stories that I've sort of engaged with as a filmmaker um, the Arthurian cycles uh, the Iraqi Arab cycles that come out of the Gilgamesh tales, the Indian cycles, the Iranian cycles all those great uh, poetic uh, narratives had the power to be transmuted over different cultures and different times and yet you still recognise their imprint as they go, grow across the world um, so it's that that's the ultimate power of, of the poetic story it seems to me and that's what fascinates me along with the, the wondrous nature of the story itself it's the power to transmit over time and space Thank you, I mean this, this issue of transmission of course is, is so entwined with the idea of and, and the repository of memory isn't it which um, I know why you, you talk about a lot in your book, which we'll come back to in the, in the final segment of this discussion. But for now, can we just, um, I'd like you both to think about and talk about the, the role of uh, memory, oral tradition, remembering and telling uh, a little bit. Because, of course, these stories would be lost in some cases if they hadn't been told, remembered and retold for centuries. Um, in some cases, as you know, as a historian, stories um, are written down and then texts are lost and the only way to access them is in fact through the tellers of these stories um, or indeed texts are modified and so on. So maybe we can talk about that for the next few minutes. Um, I, I just wanted to... One of the things that attracted me about the Norse story in a way and particularly the making of Kwasir is um, its grit and its growth and the stuff that poets are made of, and that the fact that they travel across different terrains. And it's a very interesting um, story about how through memory and the telling of stories, you awaken, the poet, Kwasir, awakens memory in those who listen. And that's, in a way, the first thing. Any other performing art form, you can rehearse or you have to rehearse. But the thing about storytelling is there has to be the listener and the teller. And no one person is the controller. If the teller didn't have the listener, there is no story to be told. Because the listener is taking ownership of their imagination and the teller is just unlocking it with the use of language, poetry, sound, which has a musicality. So it's, in a way, it's the oldest because it is the initial dialogue which then becomes performance. 
It is about memory and the retelling. And the very important thing is the listening to the tale. Um, one of the people I sort of trained with um, was uh, Purnata, uh, uh, Samrat Purnadas Baul. And uh, he always said there are just three things in the training is we don't remember what we took in in our mother's womb, but we were listening to sounds. And even Zilla Khan, who sings Kavalis, often says that all male Sufi poets, even if they don't say it, they always remember that the sound came from their mother's milk. After all, they sat in that lap, and those were the first words, poems, stories they heard that then just get sung and then get retold. Um, I'm sorry I'm moving in a kind of elliptical way of how memory works. Um, and it is about not just the individual memory, it's about a collective memory. And the whole storytelling process is about a collective memory that the storyteller as interpolator individuates. I just keep that as part of the oral imagination. Yeah. Yeah. So you're saying, in fact, that the first thing is, is that it is unusual because it is... It depends, it's a dialogic process between the listener and the storyteller. And so it's not just about remembering the storyteller, remembering the story and being able to tell it, but it's, um, it's a dynamic process where the listener too plays a part. But also for the storyteller to know and be part of an oral tradition. Right? There, are, there are places which have richer oral traditions than others. And it's been, certainly as an anthropologist, I know there was the interest in, say, Africa's oral traditions was uh, introduced as an idea in, as a substitute for written history. That, oh, they don't have written history, there are no archives, but there are oral traditions. But then the whole debate was about the reliability of oral traditions. Do people remember correctly? Is this as reliable as archival material? Which, of course, historians came back and said, well, archives are notoriously unreliable too, or there are multiple ways of reading archives, and so on. Um, so the memory of, of the written word and the memory of the, of the oral word is also uh, intention. Yeah. And there's several levels to it, aren't there? You know, the different kinds of things that are being remembered. Uh, you might be telling stories for everybody's entertainment around the fire at night. Uh, you might be preserving genealogy for the purpose of, uh, you know, the dynasty of a kingdom or the ownership of land. A lot of these things are in these early poetic traditions. Mm. Um, and uh, you might be transmitting uh, ritual texts and stories whose exact accuracy is necessary for the correct performance of the rituals. I mean, it yes. is, it, to take an example, uh, the Rig Veda, the earliest stratum of the Vedic uh, songs in India, uh, it, the, the earliest stratum is thought to be late Bronze Age, you know, let's say around 1400 BC. Now, the earliest manuscript of this text is from the 1360s AD. Now, there were obviously earlier manuscripts, but at a, at a, for a long phase of the transmission of this text, which is poetry, and sometimes it's not only ritual stories, but battles and kings, um, uh, for a very long period, the transmission was only confined to certain priestly, or we might almost say bardic, but priestly families, uh, who passed this down, and clearly there's a couple of millennia 
of oral transmission of this stuff. Now, you say, was it accurately transmitted? Wonderful stories, of course, embellished by every generation of storytellers, just as Vayu embellished our story this morning. But those texts, scholars can now say, are, are in late Bronze Age Sanskrit. And you can ask the priests in Benares, what, what does that mean? And they say, well, we've transmitted it, but we don't know what that bit means, even though the scholars can tell you it's in late Bronze Age Sanskrit. So there's multiple forms of reminiscence, aren't there? I mean, the only other thing I'd say is when you look at the texts of some of these things that have been generated by oral formula technique, even though they're written... Beowulf, for example. Um, you know, Beowulf is only 3,300 lines, but it, it, it's a segment of a very much bigger corpus of stories, rather like the Iliad is only, you know, one moment in, a, in the ninth year of the war. And in Beowulf, the poet refers to other tales. Um, uh, you know, you'll remember, that's when the fight at Finnsburg took place, but let's move on. Beowulf faced the dragon. And, uh, you know, so the, the, he is... He is, uh, the audience might have only asked him to tell that tale that night, and Beowulf is probably a knight's tale. Um, but he could have told lots of other stories, and that's how, in my experience of actually encountering surviving storytellers, like in Iran, you know, that, that's, um, that's what they do. You ask them, can you tell that tale? And they, they do it. This is a good moment to see the first clip then. As we're just getting it on, I was just wondering in relation to the, for, uh, the Fardasi tellers we're going to see, um, that do, they also have two uh, kinds, do they? One who are the absolute reciters and the others who will actually interpolate. That's right. I mean, mm. if, just before we, we start, I mean, this is a clip which I shot in um, 1996 in, in Iran. There's a, a, a class of oral storytellers known as the Nakals who have come all the way down through Iranian history, but after 1979 they've effectively stopped performing because their stuff was un-Islamic, pre-Islamic. And, and um, uh, I asked two of these guys whether they'd come out of retirement and... and uh, and do it for us. And, and you know, Mr. Uh, Tarab, who's, who you'll see, was, uh, he still had his tale teller's jacket with his gold braid and his cupboard and his stuff. And it was like uh, the Magnificent Seven, you know, can you do this? <laughs> I will do it for you. And, um, and uh, you know, they are using that text, which is a written text, written by a great Persian poet building on an oral transit, uh, uh, tradition, 1000 AD, the court of Mahmud of Ghazni. It uses the oral, oral formulaic technique, but it's a written text. Its antecedents lie in oral story, but also in written text. What they do, as Vayu says, is they, you'll see, they plant the text of Ferdowsi on the stand in front of the performance, but they improvise rhythmically and in verse around the story. And, of course, the great stories are things like Rustam and Sarab, you know, the father killing the son in battle and realize, only when he lifts the, after the terrible battle, lifting the, the helmet off does he recognize him. The other thing you'll see in the clip is the painted backdrop, which all oral stories, tale tellers used to use, which is set up in a village. Some of them have the panels with the different episodes of the story. They point to them as they tell that episode. So this is the death of Dara at the hands of Iskandar. I think you're okay. Yeah, no, no, you're okay. just move it a bit. Yeah. Thank you. 
need a bit of sound, I think. Let me, let me go back on it. May we, may we start again? Is that possible? The interesting thing, while, while we're just sorting the sound problem out, the interesting thing is, as I say, this has been really gone underground, stopped in 1979. But uh, after we put this on TV, um, they started getting requests for gigs. And, um, <laughs> and, the, and that now in the Café Azeri, at least last time I was there in Tehran, you can actually go and see these, these men working on kind of Tuesday nights. You know, as part of the Iranian, uh, Iranian tradition. But um, uh, it's a fantastic sight to see and gives you a sense of the dynamism of, uh, of an oral performance in a you know, pre-literate society. The legend of Darius' death is still told by the last of back roads of Iran with their painted backdrops. We did this on spec. We literally asked him to go out to a village and do it. And um, one of the, uh, I remember one of the old farmers coming in for the fields going, what's this, is this the dosi? <laughs> but the rich part of the entertainment tradition in Iran, in towns and villages in the pre-TV era. I think you're going to miss his fantastic gurgling as he dies, unfortunately. But... <laughs> yes! <laughs> well, the king is dead. Some... Long live the king. Oh, there we go. There we go. But anyway, a, a descendant of the authentic tradition of Iranian Nakals. And of course there are practitioners like this all across Asia still practicing their and, and by you, you've trained with many of them, haven't you? Uh, this is not a one-off uh, tradition in Iran that Michael Anna. Yeah, I was just, um, I was still, my imagination was still there. Um, <laughs> just a quick question, Michael. So the, the actual painting, is it done on a kind of canvas? It's on a, a canvas. And it's hand-painted? It's on a canvas and it's hand-painted. And actually, and this is where TV interferes with reality, perhaps, we couldn't find one when we were in Tehran, and... Some, and then the storyteller said, ah, oh, well, you need to go and see X, who was a painted backdrop painter before 1979. So we went to this guy who was in his 80s, and uh, we said, can you paint as a backdrop like you used to do? He said, sure, what, what do you want? Rustam and Sarab? No, I want Iskandar and Dara, please. The moment when Alexander holds Darius, Darius in his arms, and uh, Dara bequeaths the kingdom to the... Uh, uh, to, to Iskandar and he came up with that absolutely fabulous we gave it to the British Museum afterwards it's so a, he painted it for he you painted it for us yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it's hand painted and it's hand painted yeah, and, and a wonderful piece of work because yeah. I, I was just wanting to bring that up in relation to um, well a couple of things both in terms of memory a skill in terms of storytelling uh, and the different uh, and training and I move into um, uh, the tradition of the Ashiks. Um, when I was thinking about the skill of the painted backdrop, um, it's again a part of an oral memory, interestingly, because in the days when Chennai was known as Madras, 
um, <laughs> the film hoardings were, you know, spectacular size. And anybody would get vertigo to climb up those ladders to paint the faces of those um, Tamil film actresses and the heroes. And um, I was, uh, actually I had commissioned one of those artists to paint a mural in, in my house of a, of a Vishnu, not a Tamil film actress. But um, <laughs> it's a very specific art. I said, you know, is the scale done sheer, by sheer measurements? And he said, no. There is a technique of memory. And it's, it can be photographic, but how do you transport it onto that amazing size? And they are there up on these ladders, uh, bamboo ladders with bare feet in the hot Madras sun. And there's traffic down below. There's nothing, no shelter to hold them. And I was just curious to pick up this thing that he said, it's memory. You know, we've seen her face in real life or we've seen his face in real life. We go to see the screen and it's a memorized thing. So I'm just going to leave that one thing as a glimpse. And I'm just going to also embark into something where oral memory is, is such a, a significant part of uh, village life uh, still, thankfully, uh, in India. And this happened, uh, and, and where I was sort of personally uh, struck by it was um, a tsunami had struck on that southeastern coast um, of Chennai. And uh, I, I was really in one of my existential moments of saying, why on earth, you know, do I do storytelling? What does it mean? You know, where am I going? I'm gazing at the sea, and uh, my husband would say, come on, eat your breakfast. Um, so, but tsunami, the, the, the waves struck on that coast, and uh, my husband sort of rushed out in Gandhian mode with jerry cans of drinking water, and I was slapping behind in a sari. And uh, I suddenly met this goat herd, and he said, uh, you know, Amma, Amma, you know, that wave, we never saw it, but do you know, in Markandeya's uh, story, the Markandeya, there are Puranas, great epics. So this is a non-literate goat herd, can't read even Tamil, can't write, though he often questions uh, the fact that my husband can't even speak Tamil. How will he get on well in the world? He speaks English. <laughs> and I said, hurrah for independent India. But, uh, but his point was, um, you know those stories we get in the Kutu, the storytelling troops that come to us um, during the different puja times, they spoke of a great big wave and how it covered everything and everything was inundated and that Markandeya was just floating on this water because he wanted to see uh, Vishnu's Maya and he just couldn't understand it. But you know now they've given a name for it. On the radio I heard it's called Tsunami. Now, it's, it's very interesting the, the way metaphor or story works even in daily language or trying to understand it. So the storytelling really comes with, you're using a language that's in common use, it's daily, but in a switch it can become extra daily. And that storytelling oral memory capability in India, I'm sure it's true of other oral cultures, definitely with African cultures. Um, 
that's what keeps this literacy and these stories alive because they're constantly evolving changing context they don't change their main shape it's just that moment that context now what markanya was going through was a metaphor of maya but this man has related it in his understanding that that is the huge tsunami wave and we will survive and it gave him hope and he took off his goats and he walked off so there's no what I'm, what what for me was uh, very thrilling to say is that thank god for story that's a way of learning even with slum dog millionaire what really comes out is the orality and the assimilation of these two slum boys and in a way that's the reality so many slum children and don't have books you know but they're just learning things through so- story memorizing through association and that's how they bursting forth in the knowledge so they speak italian fluently if they want to uh, show you taj mahal they'll speak japanese if they want to sell you a handbag and get more of a tip they'll speak french they'll speak anything but those phrases are tucked away into their memory for a particular use and a story uh, you know is attached to it which is a significant so the interesting idea there is that the you're saying orality you know because writing is associated with knowledge in so many traditions uh, you're really arguing for knowledge that is possible through orality right and through oral oral memory and oral knowledge is a completely different way of learning but a more enduring one given large parts of the world's population in fact are not literate are not people but it doesn't mean that they're stupid or don't know things right it's a very fundamental fact that we tend to overlook um i certainly work <clears throat> my amongst illiterate but very enthusiastic voters in india and of course when people say oh, is that what you research on well that's very easy poor people vote because they you just pay the money and they'll vote for you and if only life was that simple you know our political parties rich political parties would win elections but you work with people who don't engage in writing but have an incredible sophistication and understanding about notions of citizenship or politics and or politicians or power because knowledge is possible through, through so many other means and that's the sort of general point that you're making aren't you and yeah. and that's the point i mean you are familiar with slum dog millionaire you you know what this reference is to which of course is extraordinary because this chap doesn't have schooling doesn't have access to education and yet is able to win a million dollars because he he knows the answers to questions and that knowledge is acquired uh true serendipity but true listening mm-hmm. it's interesting though i was i was terribly struck talking about slum dog and the and the structure of the story but of course you know the the western press kind of oh it's a fantastic story you know it's this kid does this and you know the two children get separated at birth and it's really and of course the times of india review said well of course it's a charming little piece but so how many times have we have this story in hindi movies you know <laughs> god not again the two kids get separated one becomes a gangster one becomes a oh you know Uh, and of course it's true it's an absolute cliche of filming but you you take that story out and put it in another culture and everybody goes wow you know yeah. with the context the, the, we must um, maybe we could talk a little bit now about about the ramayana itself and the context of the ramayana which uh, most of you might be familiar with i think michael we both need to speak closer to our oh, okay sorry yeah um is that um the ramayana is uh, w- one of the great epics of the indic tradition 
um, and Sita is a central character of the Ramayana. But before we talk about Sita and the book Sita's Ascent, um, I wondered whether we could uh, talk about the Ramayana and the many traditions and the tellings of the Ramayana because it is a much told and retold story and also a very controversial story right up to contemporary times. The telling of the Ramayana is one that has been dogged with controversy uh, right all along. Um, what is it about the Ramayana that makes it so uh, controversial? Do you want me to try? I'm, uh, it's, um, I mean, the first thing to remember is that it's a very old story, and it probably, the modern scholarship on the, the Ramayana suggests that it originated out of oral tales in a very narrow area of the Ganges plain in the second half of the first millennium BC. Mm. You know, it's not as old as the Mahabharat stories. Um, and, it, it, and that's when the written text, the Ur text, this is the one that you can get in Brockington's fascinating dissection of the different layers of the, uh, of the tradition, and it's the, the first main committing to writing, but it then gets appropriated by the Guptas, the great uh, indigenous dynasty in the, you know, the 300s AD, and um, uh, it gets appropriated for political reasons as a, a great heroic narrative, just as the Iliad was appropriated in the, the, the Iron Age, as a a great heroic narrative of a, a heroic king who defeats terrible enemies. And it gets recycled in that way throughout Indian history. Uh, I mean, the play, the Rama plays that really took their present form in the Banaras area in the 18th to 19th century were understood by a lot of people, British and native, as, as being a comment on British imperialism. Rama was the indigenous a hero, if you like, and the and the the devilish armies of Ravana were were the Brits. In fact, in fact, um, you know, Mahatma Gandhi, of course, called for the, the expulsion of the Brits and the return of the rule of Rama. You know, so the, it was always amenable to that kind of interpretation, and has since been appropriated. We might talk later, I guess, by the the BJP in the Hindutva, uh, the national Hindu nationalists in India, as a, a implicitly wanting to expel other non-Indian elements in Indian civilization. So it always had that element. But it's a fantastic story, isn't it? It's, it you know, it's, reminds us of the Greek myth. Sita has, a, in, in the full version of the text, problematized in the final book. Um, the heroic battle, the characters are wonderful. Uh, there are 200 supposedly different versions of the tale, 20 different versions in Indian languages alone, and some of them full-scale epics, like the one in Tamil, which is completely not derivative from that, you know. And, and um, uh, in some of them, Ravana is a hero. Great Tamil nationalist, uh, Evi Nayaka, in the, in the, at the end of the Second World War, interpreted the... the, the Ravana is the hero, and the, it was the indigenous, dark-skinned people who were being overcome by the, the light-skinned northerners, you know. So uh, it, it's, it's susceptible to all kinds of interpretation, but at the root, it is a fantastic story. Yeah. And, uh, it, it really is, in, in, in terms of, an, in, in a way, it's the first sort of linear kind of narrative. In a way, it was the first novel. And, then of, and of course, you've got a hero who um, wanted to partly defy his father's polygamy and you know the the love of his life it's a monogamous marriage so it's it's for all the reasons that Michael has mentioned you know it's one of those ideals for a national 
trophy or entering a national narrative and, and that canon. Um, you know, because in relation to why is it also so problematic? It's so loved and it's so problematic. I think it, it's, it, it, I mean, like Michael says, there are so many versions. In fact, in the um, dialects, I think there's about 1,500, you know, when you go into Maithili, the original sort of folk versions. But uh, I, think it, I think there's also the problem uh, and ascent. Um, of the nature of divinity. Because the moment you put the crown and the halo to the characters, they are worshipped, which is fantastic. Otherwise, we wouldn't have festivals, we wouldn't have a whole industry around that. But it's also wonderful to see them, as Michael pointed out. They're, they're also, uh, the, uh, the principal characters are also archetypes. You know, they are human beings. There is also a deep psychological condition to them, which is never stated, but I think that's what really gave birth to the multiple non-literate versions. And that's the real excitement, in a way, now about the Ramayana. And especially the role of women being problematized in recently, is that yes, right? And yes. when, if you look at the main narrative that... We're, the Valmiki narrative, which was foregrounded by the 78-episode TV version, yes. uh, it, it has a certain view of marriage and men, women, doesn't yeah, it? And, it's sort of this lovely uh, imposed little um, model. Of but, but feminists in India have uh, produced very antagonistic reactions to that narrative, haven't they? Yes, and I, I'm wondering if in, in terms of television and, and film, um, before, in, I think in the silent film era, there was a wonderful Maharashtrian actor who played female roles. And his um, wearing of a sari became, you know, epitomized how a woman should wear her saris, how the flowers in the hair on his wig should be worn. He was perfect, you know. So it's interesting to have that first seed in a way of, uh, well, not first seed, but a continuous seed of that kind of male gaze that's positioned on Sita as the wife of an ideal marriage within that matrix. Then, of course, for me, I think what's very exciting in terms of structures of narrative is then what happens when Rama exiles her. Because now... There are titles. Mm. All titles are made in a male world. You are a married woman. That's a complete different canvas from you are a married man. Should we <laughs> talk about women and sitas and the and the more recent political controversies? Um, after we've watched, uh, if you can just stay with this idea of uh, the different tellings and the performances of the Ramayana that are done all over India, all over the subcontinent, and indeed in Southeast Asia and other parts of Asia. And, and start with your clip, Michael, of, of uh, yeah. this narration. If, if, it's, uh, if this is a help to everybody, I'm not trying to offload my old film clips on you. <laughs> um, uh, the reason I just brought this along is simply because um, we, the, the, it gives you a, a sense of the energy of the... Uh, pu public performance today of the Ram Leelas, the Rama plays, in, uh, which take place in a number of places in North India, but most famously at Ramnagar near uh, Banaras under the patronage of the Maharaja Banaras. 
And this festival is, I think, 31 days of plays of the Rama story. And on each day, the little playlets of the story go around a, a, a circuit of the area, and vast numbers of people come. What you'll see, and, uh, and obviously this is an introductory clip to a film, so you have to take it with a pinch of salt, but what you see is the energy of the crowds in, in each of these areas, in this vast showground of oral theatre, if you like, or semi-oral theatre. And, and you'll see even ordinary people in the audience with these cheap little mimeographed or pr printed texts which are um, just abbreviated bits of the text in the Tulsidas Hindi version and they're following the story and you just get a glimpse here it's not systematic but you get a glimpse of the, 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 the tableaus and the burning of the city of Ravana at the end which is done in a most spectacular way with a vast dummy of Ravana and it's followed up by a little summary of the story in case you're not all familiar with it, um, which we chose to do with a 1932 uh, black and white Tamil version of the story. So let's see if we have better luck with the sound this time. If we don't, we'll have to stop, I think, because it'll be... Uh, it, yes, or, yes, we'll get Vanya to... <laughs> so it's a film about the Gupta and Cholan age. Medieval, early medieval India. In the story reached the year 400, the time of the fall of Rome and the Dark Ages in the West. But here in India, great kingdoms rose then in the north and the south, and in modern times, this has come to be seen as a golden age. Music by A.R. Rahman with his personal permission, which is very nice. And if one story is at the centre of that idea, it's the tale of Raki, the god who came down to earth as a king, who defeated evil and ruled with justice. It's a tale known and loved by all Indians. There are said to be 300 versions of the Rama story in more than 20 different Indian languages. play going on. It's a great mood of celebration over the... In the days of the Raj, the British called the Rama stories and plays the Bible of India. If you didn't know them, they said, you couldn't know the people. Nor would you understand the powerful driving idea behind the epic tale, that whether king or commoner, you should live in virtue, done. Wonderfully smoky and mysterious, isn't it? Gods in glittering costumes standing among the trees, a vast audience all sitting round. We're on the next to the last day of 31 days of performance of the plays of the story of Rama. And for most Indian people, it's simply the best story in the world. Like the tale of Troy, it begins with the abduction of a beautiful queen. 
The wicked demon king seizes Sita, the faithful wife of Rama, the exiled king of Ayodhya. The demon king takes Sita back to his island fortress, while the distraught Rama sets out to find her, helped by the faithful monkey Hanuman. Eventually, with Hanuman's help, Rama crosses the sea and rescues Sita after a heroic battle. After his triumph, Rama returns to reign in the city of Ayodhya and brings in the Golden Age. The story has bequeathed to Indian culture the ideal of a just rule. In the modern freedom struggle against the British, Mahatma Gandhi himself invoked the return of the rule of Rama. In around the year 400, the epic tale the told by the Turks the real place became fixed today. in a real place. It gives you a little flavour of the became history. Going back to the Gupta age, when the story was foregrounded, I mean, one thing I would emphasise is that these stories are not uh, are never neutral as they, as today in politics. And of course, um, uh, when the great native dynasty arose in the fourth century AD, the Guptas. Uh, they really foreground this story. Their wonderful gold coins show their kings like Skanda Gupta depicted as Rama with his bow. And, uh, and that perhaps is the beginning of, of seeing Rama as God. Um, the, the scholarship would suggest that the earlier phase of the story back in the period of the Buddha and afterwards the, the, you're talking about a, an epic story like the Iliad which has been told for the warrior class, for the Kshatriyas and the, their kings, you know, that, it is, uh, it, that there is a transformation of the tale to the point in the 12th century when Rama by then is seen clearly as an avatar of uh, Vishnu, as he probably is in the Gupta age, you know, so the story isn't neutral. Um, and changes and is expanded over time. Yes, and in fact, the the uh, you know what the story of the Ramayana and its different tellings, both through the film that you showed us in the 1932 um, black and white film and other such representations of the Ramayana, which fix the story, right? It fixes the story in a particular way, in a way that your reference to the colonial government calling it the Bible of India is seems to, at one level, do violence to the idea of the shifting narrative of an epic, doesn't it, that your film captures, that in the enacting of it every year, every night, there is room for improvisation, there is room for changing, there's a room for relating to the audience and its mood that day, which fixing it in a text or a film just doesn't allow for. Right? That, and that's, that's the right. tension by yeah, what you were yeah, talking about yeah. earlier. Um, my sort of <coughs> experience, uh, which I sort of attribute to while performing it now, say, like, I mean, we have so many Ramayanas from the subcontinent. We have Ramayanas, or the story of Ramayana, Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam, and they have amazing uh, di diversifications. And sometimes I think they're quite bold and quite often... Uh, like Indonesia, um, they have Muslim troops, 
actually mm -hmm. performing the Ramayana, which often comes mm -hmm. as a surprise. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Um, my, so when I sort of call my Ramayana diasporic Ramayana, because I sort of tend to, of course, I've transposed it into English, and uh, I'm very grateful to Chris uh, Banfield, who helped me actually place, uh, you know, be selective about the narrative, because as an Indian, I'm very enthusiastic to go off into many, you know, branches and tributaries of it. As, as an Indian listener, they can contain that. I'm not in any way diminishing a Western listener's imagination, but because you're also dealing with so many names, the complexity of relationships, um, it's important to slightly be selective about what will make sense in that narrative. So with the diasporic Ramayana, when we perform it uh, in England, two things. The, uh, I'm a nightmare for any lighting designer and any sound uh, person. Purely because my script, in inverted commas, is not scripted. It is part of an oral imagination. So, while working with musicians, I can only say I may arrive at that cue, but the point is that as musicians, whether you're Brazilian percussionists or whether you're uh, a Manchester uh, jazz band or you know, you're a world musician, you have to travel with me in that story. And we have to listen and arrive at that point when you are creating the landscape through your music, emotional or geographical. So this can be a real nightmare situation on a European stage. The other th uh, problem in a European stage is we have very strict European time directives, um, which is great that everything is unionized, you have your technical <laughs> staff, you have their team <coughs> at a certain time, and you have to shut the theater down at a certain time. But those Ramayanas and those tellings, when they, uh, when they take 18 nights, 31 nights, each night the audience is returning in those spaces in India, in those cultures, because the storyteller left it on a high the night before. And he or she, quite often he, can come back the next night and he's judged the kind of chemistry of the audience, very much like a jazz musician, and he can embroider, embellish, you know, come up with new ways of re-looking at a particular moment. He's got 31 days to do it. We've got two hours to put in a two-millennium-year-old epic, and quite often, I mean, I have worked very hard in not ending uh, it in a neat and tight way. I just sort of keep op uh, closing every chapter of the telling with some kind of provocative dilemma. And um, so these are restrictions we, we just face in the physical and material world being, being here. But um, it's, it's also what, what I've tried to do is keep this thing of an oral imagination alive. Having a non-scripted text keeps you on your toes and present as a performer, even, even if it's a no-smith. It should breathe in the space. It's a pity it is daytime outside, but thank you for the wonderful artificial atmosphere. We can enter into that Scandinavian landscape where you can have six months of night and six months of day. But it's, it's always making these negotiations with time, space, the context of your audience, whereby, which, you know, which the Ramayana teaches you. You're always thinking of context. It's not about playing safe. It is about the historical moment. It's about what's happened in the news, 
how do you relate it, but still don't distract from that from that amazing linear story or world story. May I add a, yeah. a, just a point, p- picking up this question about the privileging of one version of the story. We spoke about the the two hundred versions of the Ramayana, and of course, a very famous essay in this in this. Um, uh, famous book, uh, Paul, Paul Rickman's set of essays, The Many Ramayanas, it was sparked by a great essay by A.K. Ramanujan about um, the 200 Ramayanas. And this book in, in, the, in the Hindutva era got banned from Jawaharlal Nehru University curriculum in Delhi because of this issue about Hindutva and uh, the BJP foregrounding one version of the story. Um, and uh, I remember at the time Romila Fapa, the great historian at that university, um, at the time of the, um, you know, the destruction of the, the mosque in Ayodhya uh, was the time following on this 78-episode TV thing that was shown all over India. I can remember being in India in January 1987 and being in a village at Kasambi near Allahabad, which had no electricity, and, <clears throat> and the village had hired a generator, and they got one television hooked up to the generator, and the entire village watched was watching the, the show. Now, uh, what Romila wrote in the papers was that her great concern was that the, the multiplicity of narratives that existed all over India were going to be hedged in by the massive power of television. It was the biggest television audience ever for anything in the world had, had happened for this show. And, and one version of that narrative was going to conquer the others and drive them out, possibly, almost like a kind of virus, you know. And she had complaints about that for all sorts of reasons, not merely the multiplicity of narratives, but the nature of the narrative that had been constructed by Doordarshan, the Indian TV, with its middle-class premise, its allegiance to a particular idea of marriage and patriarchy and all this sort of stuff. There were many aspects that troubled her about the very nature of the story that was being shown on TV. So, um, you know, these are great questions. I mean, on another level, of course, oral storytellers always, the best story has the, is like uh, Darwinian storytelling, isn't it? The best story goes, you know, many versions of the tale of Troy, but Homer's one was so fantastic and so powerful that the others shared. You can see that the whole epic cycle had all the great stories of uh, Memnon and Sarpedon and all these people, but the, that story of that moment in the ninth year of the, kill, of the killing of um, Hector by Achilles uh, became the most powerful story because, of course, it's not just a great story, but it's about crushing eternal verities of life. You know, uh, it is cruel, remorseless, its view of human destiny, it's just fabulous. And, and the, the last point on it, of course, exactly as you were talking about endings for you, you know, it, it nevertheless is just one bit of the telling. And Homer's last lines of the Iliad, if I can remember right, are. Such were the funeral rites of, um, uh, you know, strong-armed Hector or something like that. It, it just ends up. So that was his funeral. <laughs> um, so, um, there, you know, there are many, many issues about the, the, the nature of these tales and how they're transmitted, and it's still going on. You know, that question of Rama as God, of course, is a major issue now. You know, you go to the Kum Mela, and the, Rama has almost been turned into a sort of Christian supreme deity, deity um, in defiance of all the multiplicity of the Indian tradition, written re- both religious and storytelling. And that arises in the Middle Ages, but 
you know, you don't in Chennai have sit there talking about uh, Rama as God, as a synonym for God. So, so that development, which is really a development of Hinduism, which of course is a, a Western construct and a Western word, uh, not a concept in Indian culture, Hinduism, um, uh, that, that's really arisen in the last hundred years. And uh, uh, I was just reading a wonderful book recently, and I'll, 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 I'll sh- shut up, I'm sorry, I'm gambling on, but th- th- this, this very, very important issue vis-a-vis the modern use of this tale in India for political and cultural purposes. Th- there's a wonderful book called The Last Brahmin, written in Telugu, which has come out in an English translation, which is an extraordinary portrait of a, an old uh, Sanskrit Brahmin in a rural town in, um, in Andhra. And he, he doesn't allow his son to, to fulfill his funeral rites because he has ceased to be in the tradition uh, of uh, the Brahminical ritual tradition of what we call Hinduism. And the father refers contemptuously to Hinduism as being a Western-generated construct, which has really come from the colonialists, is an imitation of Christianity and is not, does not reflect the true um, uh, identity of the uh, Brahminical uh, religious tradition which he and his ancestors have sustained for more than 3,000 years. So <coughs> the way these things get manipulated, as in the Iranian revolution, the Hindutva people are modernizers, really. They're not going back to a real tradition at all. In fact, one of the modernizing <coughs> moves has been of that chauvinistic Hindu, Hindutva ideology was also to uh, remove uh, Ram from that triumvirate. When you see uh, traditional local calendar art representations of Ram, he's always seen with Lakshman and Sita and Hanuman uh, as a, a unit. Right? That is, and yet what we got was an emergence of a muscular single Ram, who, is, who, who turns into this warrior who is going to get rid of annoying minorities like the third largest Muslim population in the world that lives in India. Uh, but that kind of strident chauvinism also uh, modified and distorted that telling of the Ram, of, of the Ram figure, which, uh, which fortunately one would say now in 2013, that big televised massive, as, as Michael was describing, I, I used to live in India those days, and, and uh, trains stopped, and you know you, you couldn't, I have frequently been on train journeys where the train didn't go anywhere because the driver and the guard and the conductor and all the passengers would be on the platform watching one screen when the Ramayana was on. That's what used to happen all over India at that time. You just couldn't do anything. Fantastic. Um, and that's, I mean, talk about the power of television. It's every TV filmmaker's dream to show, really. It's amazing. But it also, it did, like Michael says, impose a certain reading of the Ramayana, which has become the received uh, reading. But fortunately, as an optimist, one would say that those other tellings of the Ramayana and those performances of the Ramayana, yeah, will continue, and, yeah. and we hope will continue, yeah. and will continue with yeah. retellings. Now, Vayu, I mean, that brings us to, to the most recent retelling that we have, a freshly minted book that's hot off the press, uh, Sita's <laughs> Ascent. And I was struck, I've heard by you uh, tell, narrate the Ramayana, the Barbican and the British Library. Uh, it's an experience if you get a chance to go and listen. But of course, you've told Ram's story as a storyteller. But as a writer, you wrote about Sita. Mm. You want to talk about that? Um, 
thank you for that opening. And um, yeah, <clears throat> I think there's more opportunity for these multiple versions of Rama's story to actually be populated if you can go through Sita. Now, I've been very careful because, uh, in a way, I was also part of the casualty of the um, uh, 300 Ramayanas being banned, not because I've said anything um, <clears throat> that denigrates Sita in, 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 in the original manuscript, but because there were two things that happened. I think there was a um, book on uh, Shivaji, Mm. that had come out, and um, a certain fundamentalist faction decided to burn down the library with all the archival material, because who was this Western writer coming in and dealing with our material? Then, when we had the Supreme Court ban on the 300 <coughs> Ramayanas, suddenly, even publishing houses began to get the sweats and started saying, oh gosh, you know, just with the name Sita, it, you know, there could be assassinations, there could be an honor killing, and you live in London and it could happen, and I'm thinking which detective is going to be, you know, which killer is going to be paid to come and find me at the dog's home, you know. So, uh, but, but the point that I was trying to make was, have you all actually read the manuscript seriously? You know, because this is really about the triumph of the idea of Sita. I, I, I enjoy this idea that it's Sita is actually an idea and in a way um, um, uh, it's, it's dealt in, I'm sort of having a moment where I can't remember the particular writer, who, another writer who deals with another particular um, epic figure but it, if we look at Sita as a metaphor who's lived through time you know, that's what's exciting. She's always adapting to circumstances, which Rama can only be allowed to do when he is in exile. He's meeting very different social classes of people. Uh, but Sita is still protected. So I felt the best way to, I mean, I, mean, I didn't sort of cunningly plan it, but I just thought, what, what a fantastic thing you place a character, you strip her from being a queen, you, you, you're keeping her as a person who's uh, expecting the child who's going to be the heir, but she's not a queen, so she's this abandoned person, and that wonderful uh, convention in all literature of placing, throwing somebody into a forest. So it's the forest of your own being, and it's the external forest. I mean, Shakespeare's mm. dealt with that. The Mahabharata deals with it. This is where the characters for 12 years find their strength. You know, So it, it just seemed the perfect device. And then I asked myself, am I just doing a retelling of the story? Where can I now, entering this realm, I have often thought, which is the written word, because... Um, it, I find it restrictive. How can I push it into the realm of fiction? And indeed, what is fiction if it is not narrative? Mm. You know. So now you're entering a completely different realm. You're using the familiar, good old storyteller's trade, but you bring in the magician's trade of the final prestige. What is that surprise? What is that twist? And... I've used a familiar premise. I'm not going to let the 
cat out of the bag because I hope you'll buy the book. Um, but it goes deep into the cave of what could be disturbing in a relationship of two people so much in love but are pulled apart by the state, circumstances, and the power of their own love for each other. So life is always about those kind of miscommunications. It's not about communications, or at least that's where you enter the realm of fiction. Interestingly, that's a dimension one couldn't work in to an oral storytelling. Because oral storytelling, yes, it's very episodic, it's very action-driven. And you can never make that much time under European time directives of a theater performance as actually entering that very vulnerable heart of man and woman. So that, it's, a, it's, a, it's really about what could have been Rama's trigger to exile Sita, and that whole thing is fictitious. Uh, but it's a retelling, it's a different version. And in, in a sense, uh, if you remember the black and white uh, 1932 clip, that rendering of the Ram story, where it ends with a sort of happy ending of everybody being reunited, um, you, you start the story after that narrative ends, doesn't yeah. it? The book, end, the book begins with uh, a speculation, really, of what happens to characters beyond the author's imagination. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, as, as a storyteller, you're very much part of a tradition that tells a particular story. But as a writer, you've explored the interiority of that story of those characters, which is beyond authorship, and that allows you your own authorship, isn't it? It's a very, and the novel form works very well for it because it's very meditative, it's very philosophical, it's very interior, it's very... Uh, emotional. I was on the Northern Line in tears this morning rereading the <laughs> Not that it's a weakness story, but it's a very moving piece of writing. So I do, and it's a, it's a, it's a small book, so you can read it in, in one reading, as I've been persuading friends to do, and they've done. So I hope you will. I think we'll close the formal uh, discussion here, unless Michael wants to come back with anything, but as there is an audience, we take a couple yeah, of Yeah, I mean, only just to add that, of course, within the, re the many regional readings, there are readings where Sita is, uh, you know, seen as a wronged woman. And, yes. uh, and, and a number of feminists, there were feminist demos when I was in India not long ago, uh, really cl claiming Rama as a misogynist. And, uh, uh, you know, so, so the capacity of a great myth to have different readings, especially in that problematized final book, which kind of reminds me of the Medea almost, you know, Greek myth. Um, it, yeah. that, you're within the tradition in yes. a funny way aren't you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but I, I'm also wanting to say I'm very grateful to the um, rasa or the emotive <coughs> sensibilities of uh, two uh, Ramayanas which again um, being a, uh, a subject to, uh, or rather uh, a creature of post-colonial times is um, the Kirti Vasa the Bengali Ramayana which begins with that, uh, or rather it ends in a very, very deep and tragic moment, because tragedy is not something we actually have in our Sanskrit aesthetics or folk um, theatre aesthetics, but there's something about that Bengali Ramayana which ends it in such 
a wrenching form that it acted as a trigger for me to say, okay, Great. you can't close the cover on that. Will and you give us a reading? I'll just a short very quickly reading. give you a short uh, reading. Um, and um, I just thought there were... And, um, I've sort of chosen Valmiki as the author within this version because there are Tulsi Das, there's Kamban and so on. But I felt let's start with Valmiki and again one of the um, words that got uh, into bad press um, when it was used I think 20 years ago was that Valmiki was a highwayman. His previous <laughs> life was that he was Ratnakar. He was a highwayman. He did kill people for a living and uh, steal and rob and then he had this amazing epiphanic revelation which through which he uttered these thousands of verses of what became Ramayana and focusing on that central character. So I, I just, um, there is, um, we're in, Ram, uh, in Valmiki's hermitage, it's in the forest, Sita has been exiled and effectively just been dropped there. She has no idea that she's been exiled except at the time when uh, her brother-in-law comes to leave her and she says, okay, when will you come to pick me up? It will be on the full moon night. He says, no, I have Rama's order that you are to just remain here and have, child, uh, and have the child or whatever, but he doesn't want you back. So now she's just giving birth to the child. Now, it's a very strange paradoxical situation. This is a great sage. He's a hermit. Um, they're all ascetics, but suddenly there's birth happening. And um, being the storyteller that he is, He's obviously contemplating how a woman gives birth and how a man gives birth in his mind. So it's a very short contemplation of what happens to a storyteller. So just imagine this screaming labor in one hut. A contemplative author at four o'clock in the morning watching the forest. Valmiki was sitting outside as he did when he had to think of words shaping an idea. But his heart was racing. Birth for a man is so different. It is the soft footfall of an idea that can easily go missing. No surface, texture, smell or volume. But from the women's hut he could hear screams, laughter and songs. And what would emerge would be a full body. Hopefully with breath as with blood. With the birth of an idea he had to build its muscle with words find phrases that made for blood, sentences that gave skin, grammar that gave guts, vocabulary that gave weight, sound that gave breath and voice, irony that afforded insight. But he wondered, how did one create the testicles, penis, vulva and vagina to make for the sex of an idea? A woman holds an entire epic in her womb, brings it out and it speaks for itself. When this realization dawned, Sita had been in labor for nearly two hours. By four, the singing had escalated into a frenzied game cheering. Valmiki began seeing things through the dark. The owl had been hooting and he had heard it between the screams, almost reassuring him that his nightscape would return to normal. Women had entered his life and things had been turned upside down. A part of him enjoyed the challenge. Suddenly, he saw a luminous figure in the clearing about to enter the women's hut. He wore a silk dhoti 
His forehead beamed, and the sandal-paste mark was prominent. His feet barely touched the ground. In one hand, he held a string of pearls, and in the other, a stylus. Brahma, Valmiki uttered, hardly able to say the name. He bowed low at the figure's feet. I'm impressed that you should be able to see me, Valmiki. So much is happening now, eh? What with births and exiles, hmm? said Brahma. But, oh, great one, this is your hour between sleeping and waking, the profound moment of creation. I'm so honored you've graced this hermitage. Well, I'm on my way to see the child. He is born. Valmiki blinked. Of course, great one. Could you grant me a favor? Depends on what it is. I'm economical with boons. Would you tell me what is the karma of this child who has such a great ancestry? Asked Valmiki. It is difficult, but you are the one who writes everyone's karma. How can you? Valmiki was indignant. Don't hold me responsible. Ancestry is merely social and material reality. I take account of what thoughts rippled through one's last moments in the previous life. That's what makes them choose the location of their next life. What have I got to do with the child's difficulties? Valmiki only said, Narayana, Narayana. Brahma reasoned, why call on Narayana? Ask yourself, whenever you have conceived a character, have you ever been able to control their karma? Is creation about structure or control from your point of view? The luminous figure glided on the owl's wings as it flew across the clearing to its favorite tree. <laughs> so that's for the dilemma for Valmiki, but there's a humor, uh, humorous moment if you'll just indulge me for three paragraphs, because that's okay. Um, this is where it really entered into fiction realm. Shulpanaka's Ravana sister. She is um, a, a spectacular Rakshasi, a demoness, and being an empress Rakshasi, she can shift her shape into multiple forms. So I sort of thought, what a wonderful device. I'll use her as a moving camera in the great tournament where uh, Sita and Rama are married. Now, what it, uh, in some versions of the Ramayana, they do place Ravana as one of the contestants among the 500 princes who comes to wed Sita, but obviously he loses the tournament. But um, this is really the crux of the novel, which um, I, I was, in a way, my starting point. So I um, sort of, this is after the tournament, Ravana's lost, Sita's um, and Rama are married, and Shurpanaka goes out to meet her brother who's outside with his magical tent on the day of that wedding. I caught up with Ravana later that evening. He sat in his royal apartments on the outskirts of Mithila. I could see the flames from the torchlit streets and the liveried elephants glistening in the distance. Ravana was drinking, and for the first time I saw my brother feeling defeated. I was disgusted. How could he bring himself to this lowly human condition? I prodded him. Anna, what an amazing effect you had on that assembly. They're all such complacent brats, thinking the world will go on with everyone falling in line. But there you were, letting them know war was close at hand. A timely trick, creating suspicion. It really turned the tide. Yes, and Vishwamitra turned the tide too, didn't he? replied my brother sarcastically. Don't you think it was all staged? calling that young chap Rama. 
I had to switch to double deceit as I really thought Rama was, yes, inexperienced, but had a spark, a gorgeousness I so desired to possess, or at least to corrupt. He was strong, silent, and charming. I dared not show Ravana that this man was worth my attention. Who knows what he would have done? Hardly any hair on his chest, and he's led to the bow. I think Vishwamitra set him up and said a few mantras and those vibrations lifted the bow. Anna, you have met Shiva. You know that bow like your favorite catapult that we used to play with as children to bring vultures down like mere sparrows. Ravana threw his goblet of wine at the servant Rakshasa. It struck him on his head and he started to bleed. Ravana roared. He stood and screamed, kicking the table that landed in a great crash that made everything shake. Even my toes grew talons to dig into the floor to steady myself. Then he sat and in his voice, going all soft, said, I looked at her. She was the prize, that Sita. Worst of all, did you see the way she looked at him? That fellow with hardly any hair on his chest, whom they call a man. Her every breath held tight in her breast, so that he would breathe life into her. That was love. How dare he steal her heart, her heart that would have been mine. I cannot bear it. For the first time I saw how desire was the single thread that held human and Rakshasa together. How great its fire was, how the breath of life fanned it, how the rains could never drench it, and the desert sun could not scorch it. I saw how, like dry wood, it was kindled with just one look, and here, for my brother, it was taking an unfathomable direction. He wanted to drink her in, and more importantly, be drunk by her. He was on dangerous territory. He wanted the one thing of all, he wanted the one thing all of us Rakshasas found unspeakable, love. Love in the human heart turns divine. Total surrender, unspeakable treachery. For the first time in all my lives, I saw how crushed Ravana was by a woman they called Sita. Thank you. There are a couple, I think we, we've sort of run out of time, but as you've sat being such a wonderful audience and such great listeners, uh, if there are a couple of questions, we'll take them and then there'll be time outside to have a more informal chat. Anyone? Yeah. Yes, gentlemen, there in yeah, the blue pullover. Yeah. Oh, hi. Um, one cheeky question for Value and one more serious uh, anthropological question. Value, is there an audio version of your book? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe um, there should be one. I think you should write to Chiki Sarkar at Penguin. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you. I'll okay. mention that. All right. No, Maybe coming. Good. All right. Thank you. And more serious one is um, I want to just uh, get your comments about the connection between oral storytelling and child literacy. Or actually, in fact, child illiteracy. The reason why I asked that is uh, last year the London Evening Standard ran a campaign, a very, very heartening story to me. Cut a long story short, a school in London uh, asked children to bring your favourite book to the class uh, next day. 
And a child turned up. I think it was a little girl, and she brought an Argos catalog. Ah, and the teacher asked, "What's this? Why?" He says, "Well, we don't have any books at home. This is the only thing I could find." And the other thing triggered a campaign, get London reading, and so on. Even the Prime Minister David Cameron saying, "Oh, parents should make more time to read to children." That's all very good. The reality is, I think modern families, modern parents have so little time under so much stress. You get home shattered, whatever, whatever your economic means might be. So I was wondering, would it be the same to、uh, play an audio book rather than read to them aloud? Maybe even get get a child to listen to, say, an LSE podcast or something. Right? Would that be the same as face to face, read it aloud? That would be that would be ideal. But I think in, in times of change, I just wonder what your thoughts might、Thank、be.、You. Um, very quick answer to that is, I mean, I wish we could afford the luxury of、uh, actually telling stories. I mean, that, that's how I got mine through my Telugu grandmother and listening to different Hindi things. But and I, I do think,、uh, whatever form you hear a story, whether it's audio or being told to you or through television, I mean, Michael's telling stories through his documentaries. I think it's so important to be exposed to that. You know, and、uh, because through story, it breaks its way into a child's imagination of what form they want to receive it, and that could lead to lead,、uh, that could lead to reading.、Uh, I mean, all I'd say is that, the, 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 as you know from any kind of live performance, there is a magic in live performance, and it is more memorable and it sticks in the mind longer. You know, I can remember we used to read to our kids.、Um, And, but、uh, I can, was only talking recently to my daughter, who's in the last year at Oxford, doing English and doing Middle English. And at various holidays, when they were about six or seven in Dorset, I used to I used to tell them Garwain and the Green Knight,、mm-hmm. often elaborated, or Dame Ragnild, or you know, the Owain, the Knight of the Fountain, which is the greatest story in the one of the greatest of all stories in Mabinogion and Creating the Twelve. But I used to tell them. And elaborate them. You know, the lion had a thorn in its foot. And oh, you can imagine. And、um, and actually,、um, uh, we were just talking about her middle English course, and she was going. You know, I've got、uh, Garway and completely off because you used to tell it to us、um, um, when when I was that young. You know, so there, there's something about it's not only being in a live situation, but is the engagement between the live performer and the and the audience because the telling tale changes every time. It's never the same, and、uh, and the teller responds to the reactions in the audience, even if the audience is a single child.、Mm-hmm. Thank you. Any others? Gosh, okay.、Uh, I think there's one at the back in the third row. Thank you.、Um, I think you may already have begun to answer this, and I was just wanting to know whether you think there's a different kind of knowledge. That is transmitted in the oral tradition than in the written tradition. If you're thinking about books as transmitting knowledge,、mm. is that knowledge different if you tell it as a story, verbally, orally? Yeah. Should we take both questions and then? Yeah, we shall go on. Yeah. There's one yeah. third row just behind you. Thank you.、Um, It doesn't surprise me that、um, storyte- in the storytelling world that there's a focus on traditional stories and stories that have been around for thousands of years. But what has surprised me is that there seems to be, in certain areas at least, in the storytelling world, from my experience, an active exclusion of new stories and modern stories.、Um, has that been your experience, and have you got any thoughts on 
why that might be or whether or not that should be the case. Thank you. I, I mean, I, you know, I can only speak there from, you know, what I know of bringing children up and one's friends bringing children up and all that. And, and uh, um, I, I think everybody's open to everything, don't you think? And, uh, um, you know, our kids were avid, avid consumers of modern stories, and they and some of the modern stories have just as mythic a power. You know, you think of Harry Potter or something like that. You know, um, and I was doing a thing in Cambridge last night, and the the um, one of the organisers put my PowerPoint on her computer, and her and her desktop came up, and there was Aladdin. Jungle Book, uh, Beauty and the Beast, and uh, I can't remember what else, the Aristocats or something. And she's a third-year student doing sort of Anglo-Saxon, Norse and Celtic in Cambridge. And we had a good laugh about it. And then we started talking about the stories. And we sat there, and as I got there early, we had a half an hour where we were going, oh, God, you know, it's great, isn't it? You know the bit in the Disney Beauty and the Beast when, uh, you know, <laughs> it, if it didn't broke, don't fix it, and all that sort of stuff. You know? And um, so we are receptive to everything, don't you think? I mean, there's no, you can't exclude things in, in the modern world. That's That's... That's my experience. Um, and uh, our kids move just as easily from Garwain in the Green Knight to Harry Potter as they do from Bob Dylan to the latest rap thing. You know, it's, it's the best stories and the best songs that people remember. Don't, don't you reckon? I don't know. You know. I, I, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. In fact, this question um, was asked of Philip Pullman. You know, why is it that there are no, are there no new stories for old tellings? That, I think they're, they're just different materials, and um, it's, um, it's an addiction. Once you, once you go into this realm of these old stories, there are so many layers. It's, um, I, I think it's like, you know, it's like cooking. You, you, you have the old, um, or, or like I would say it's like jazz in a way. You have the old song or the old lyrics, but each night it's being sung or played. It's a different chemistry with a different audience. So it's, and what is that chemistry? You, you have to go back to why is the teller selecting that particular story? Because they're using the larger canvas of something contemporary that has triggered it. And so the story that they're telling has a suggestion or suggests something about a contemporary context. Storytelling doesn't come with the hammer and say, you listen to this, this is topical, take a Panadol, your headache will get cured or whatever. It doesn't, but it can, it can suggest where you are in time and life. I mean, we're all st we're storytellers yeah. as human beings by definition, aren't yeah. we? You know, with great stories, you can never say when the first telling was, and it may be that there never was a first telling in the very nature of the way stories are. And everything constitutes stories. I mean, you know, I, mean, I love Shakespeare, and Shakespeare constitutes an oral telling of a story, and you're incredibly familiar with it, aren't you? You've seen King Lear 15 times, but you go there, you know what the story is, but how are they going to tell it this time? And... Um, uh, and, and, of course, the purpose of the storytelling is, is to be entertaining and to, to, to move you. Um, and in great storytelling, of course, it, as with the story of Sita, you know, it, 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 or Gilgamesh or Hector and Achilles, they're, they're about our, what we are as human beings, aren't they? And, and so I don't, I, wouldn't, I don't exclude anything, really. And your question again, can I just get us... Y 
Yeah. Why you talk about yeah. that question? Uh-huh. Yeah, the different kind of knowledge as, a, as an oral storytelling. Um, well, I mean, I can, I, I can only reiterate the idea, you know, we are overwhelmed by inf- information rather than yeah. knowledge in our culture. It's just mind-boggling, isn't it, what, what goes on. And, and, um, uh, but giving time to receive an oral telling, whether it's King Lear or, or, the, or the Ramayana, is a qualitatively different experience. And given the blizzard of over-information uh, over that we face... When you, once you give that time and you engage with it imaginatively, it inevitably makes a much greater impact on your imagination and your feelings, your sensibilities, would, would be my view. I've never really thought about it. Because but... it's interesting <coughs> you use the word transmit knowledge. And I, I, I think it's, it's, it's true because when it's live in an oral telling or transmission, you're in real time, you're in the time of your heartbeat. Mm-hmm. And so... What's being transmitted is on is on a real pace, technically. Uh, but it's also like um, what Michael was saying. You know, we receive so much information. The thing about uh, an oral tradition is um, the information turns softly into wisdom, and it's not the wisdom necessarily transmitted by the teller. It's the opening of the imagination and the ownership of that imagination of the listener which creates that wonderful experience of, ah, now I understand. You know, so wonder is, it's not being transmitted, it's being triggered. In, 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 in the, the, this, uh, Indian aesthetics, we have a word called sahardya, which means the, the teller or the performer and the listener, we're connected by this rainbow from my heart to your heart, you know, and that's what's being transmitted. It's none of us are superior, but we are triggers, and we dance in this space. Um, can, I, can I add a last, a last thought to that, which is that, you know, it is in the condition of human life, as John Donne would say, it, the world's contracted first, that um, generations grow and die, and they pass on, and they pass on down what uh, they believe to be the things that are of value, either in custom or in stories or whatever. And inevitably, there's a loss of, of those things as we move on, or a transformation into different things. But that, that passing down is... is um, if, you, if you don't, then if there's a rupture between the experience of the old, older generation, the old people, the ancestors, if there's a rupture between you and your ancestors, that's what totalitarian societies mm-hmm. try to, try, have tried to do in, even in our modern history, is to sever your link with your past. Uh, and your past is many, many things, isn't it? It's stories, it's cultures, it's, it's, la- it's our relation to our landscapes and our past. Sever that link is one of the things totalitarians do and invent a past which doesn't have an organic relation to the, the, the development of our lives and societies over time. Mm. And, and, and one of the things is this passing down of stuff which is telling us what our ancestors thought and what they, they, uh, what they felt. And, and we become different people, especially in the modern industri- industrial information blizzard age. But, but it's part of what 
retains our humanity as our link with the living past of our ancestors. You know, I'm just making a series of films about Alfred the Great and his successors. Alfred the Great was concerned about the loss of the destruction of learning and the destruction of that connection. And he translates some key books. He's concerned about writing, but he's in an oral culture. And he does a translation that meant a lot to him of Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy, which is about a man in dark times facing up to, in a dialogue with wisdom about who am I and all that stuff and he does a translation in prose and then at the very end of his life he says we're going to turn it into verse because I want it to be available for people to actually hear and receive it as a performance so they turn it into Anglo-Saxon oral poetry if you like so they can perform it and somebody a century later says you know he did lots of wonderful things he translated lots of books and anybody who's heard the tearful, moving passion of Boethius will know how uh, affecting uh, what he did is. So that idea that we're going to pass it on, and Alfred says in his introduction to the translation, you know, uh, I've often thought about the wisdom of the ancestors and how they acquired wisdom, and they tried to pass it on down to us. They bequeathed it to us. And now we can still see their footprints, but... Can we any, lo- any n- now f- still follow their track? Mm. And so he's, uh, he's almost putting into words what, what you're trying to do. You're trying to pass that thing which is still of such value to the next generation. And our duty as human beings is to give it to the children of the next generation. If they decide not to carry on and not to learn the Ramayana or whatever, then that's their decision. But our task as humans is to give them that chance. That's a good note to end on. Thank you very much. We look forward to that.